This edition of Monocle on Saturday was first broadcast on the 28th of October 2023. It's 1700 in Beijing, 11 a.m. in Kiev, 9 a.m. here in London and 4 a.m. in Washington, D.C. You're listening to Monocle Radio. Monocle on Saturday starts now. Good morning, I'm Carlotta Rabello, broadcasting to you live from Adore House in London. This is Monocle on Saturday. Coming up on today's programme, we have a leaf through the global newspapers with the journalist and broadcaster Terry Siasny. Then, we always play with those typical gender roles and we bend them and we see that everybody feels the way they want to feel and maybe get a bit empowered by the costumes. Monocle's Alexei Korolyov visits a feminist non-binary choir to understand why and how they are taking Austria by storm. First, though, it's time for the news. Israel has intensified its airstrikes over Gaza, with bright flashes and huge explosions lighting up the night sky above the territory controlled by Hamas. This comes after the Israeli army said that it was expanding its ground operations. Hamas said its militants are ready to confront the attacks with full force. The man suspected of killing 18 people and wounding 13 others in a shooting rampage in Lewiston, Maine, was found dead of a likely self-inflicted gunshot wound. It puts an end to a 48-hour manhunt that followed the most lethal episode of gun violence in the state's history. German Chancellor Olaf Scholz is making his third visit to sub-Saharan Africa in two years, as conflicts elsewhere highlight the growing importance of the energy-rich region. Scholz's trip this weekend will include visits to Nigeria as well as Ghana. Oil is Nigeria's single largest export to Germany, and officials are considering adding gas to the mix. And Portugal's president has blocked the privatization of national carrier TAP, citing poor transparency and doubts about the future role of the state in the airline. The government had approved the sale of at least 51% of TAP a month ago, which has already attracted interest from Lufthansa, Air France KLM and British Airways. That's the news here on Monocle Radio. And welcome to Monocle on Saturday. I'm joined now in the studio by the author and political journalist Terry Stiasny. Good morning, Terry. Good morning, Carlos. Uh, as we just heard there in the headlines, uh, the front pages today are dominated by the uh, attacks that happen overnight in Gaza. What stories have you? Pe- what lines of the story have you picked up for us this morning? Well, yes, as you say, you know, all of the front pages here in London are, are looking at this, and uh, you know, there's a big article in the, the Guardian talking about the developments overnight. In, Ga- in Gaza. And I think one of the things that is obviously interesting is it is so hard to establish exactly what has been going on in Gaza, particularly because all of the communications have been cut off, obviously, and with bombing as well. Um, and The Guardian here reporting that they have tried to contact loads of different aid groups within Gaza and say- saying that the Red Crescent, the World Health Organization, Médecins Sans Frontières, UNICEF and other aid groups said they had lost all contact with 
with their staff and the Palestinian uh, phone service provider said its phone connections and internet services had also been cut off. So obviously, you know, the people who have been reporting obviously at great risk to themselves from within Gaza haven't mostly been able to uh, to contact anybody to, to give us sort of information from directly on the ground. Um, and obviously a lot of the reporting is coming from sources within within Israel, but it's just describing, you know, what they're calling a, a constant thump of detonations being heard as helicopters and warplanes flying to and fro along the seafront and people trying to travel away from uh, the affected area. But also, interestingly, uh, in this report here is talking about uh, the difficulty for Israel of uh, trying to mount this offensive and particularly looking at, uh, you know, their concerns about how the tunnels and the tunnels underneath Gaza, and obviously particularly if people are worried about where the hostages might be within Gaza, some of them have said, you know, who were released that they had been taken to inside this this uh, tunnel network. You know, how do you do that? How do you actually fight, uh, you know, warfare when half of the people you are trying to fight are, are going underground, literally? Well, and it, it adds as well to the complication of, uh, you know, uh, Gaza has all but run out of fuel as well. And a lot of these tunnels rely on that fuel for ventilation. So is uh, as you were mentioning, if a lot of those hostages are being held underground, then there's a whole other array of complications that um, the lack of fuel might uh, impact here as well. Yes, um, you know, and it's it's just you know given that there has obviously been uh, extreme international discussion. We've seen obviously over the last week visits from so many world leaders trying to talk to Israel about you know obviously trying to get some idea of what they are planning to do. And this just you know really it obviously complicates things still further. In particular, talking about whether they are trying to get the hostages out, whether they are trying to get foreign nationals out of Gaza or any aid going into Gaza. You know, people talking about trying to organise some kind of a, a humanitarian truce to possibly allow aid in and people out. And that is, you know, proving proving difficult as well. Uh, we heard from a, an IDF spokesman uh, earlier this morning where uh, he said that around 100 fighter jets bombarded Gaza overnight uh, and 150 underground targets were hit. That is a relentless campaign overnight. And uh, as you are um, pointing out the, the reporting here in The Guardian, uh, it is just so difficult to understand exactly the scale of it because communications are down. Um, it will uh, take a while for the full scale of this overnight uh, attack to fully emerge. Yes, and I think, you know, the question is very much whether is this just a prelude to a bigger attack on the ground? How far is Israel going to feel that it's able to go? Because obviously, you know, for the last couple of weeks, we've been hearing that they're saying, well, you know, we're going to be there's going to be a full scale invasion. And so far that has been, you know, put off. This is not, you know, they ha- haven't been ready to do that, even though um, the defence minister here reported in The Guardian saying Israel's own population should brace for what they're calling a protracted and gruelling full-scale ground offensive you know is this just the the preparation for that or is this you know is it is it uh, as far as they feel that they can go at the moment uh, and just on a related note here to this story, we also saw this week uh, criticism to the United Nations Secretary General remarks uh, uh, towards uh, the conflict, which he immediately corrected as saying that they were completely taken out of context. We're referring here to Antonio Guterres um, when he said that the attack did not happen in a vacuum. Um, 
Israel has really capitalized on that in terms of, you know, stepping up its public relations campaign and calling for his resignation, saying it was going to stop issuing visas to key UN um, uh, workers. I'm just curious to hear your take as well on this. And, you know, um, I guess the importance of having that international monitoring accountability present here as much as possible. Uh, yes, I mean, I think you know Israel is obviously trying to to push its own its own line very strongly, and you know, given that this has all been uh, discussed within the UN and, and over the UN General Assembly, calling for a humanitarian truce, uh, you know, Israel was not being you know reacted sort of very favorably to that. Um, but it's interesting, you know, internationally, it, they started off with quite a clear line, um, but you know, international opinion is becoming more divided as, as this is go- as this is going on. I mean, there's an interesting story here from uh, Deutsche Welle, DW, which has been looking at uh, Europe's reaction, the EU's reaction to this. And obviously, you know, for the EU leaders who've been at their uh, summit meeting in, in Brussels, uh, they are, have been discussing this very intensively. And this report is saying, you know, their priority was to use their collective clout to deliver humanitarian aid and push for the hostages to be released. But also this report is saying that there have been quite a lot of difference in tone between individual EU nations. So they're pointing out, they're saying, you know, Germany has been backing Israel more closely. Uh, Olaf Scholz saying he had no doubt that Israel would follow international law, saying that Israel was a democratic state with strong humanitarian principles and the Austrian Chancellor using similar language. But then at the same time, Uh, the Spanish Prime Minister taking a different line which is much closer to the line of Antonio Guterres saying there should be an immediate humanitarian ceasefire. Um, So, you know, this is not just an argument about words. You know, there's been sort of a gap between people saying, well, what's a pause? What's a ceasefire? What is the difference here? Um, Trying to find a compromise in the language. But obviously it's important what actually ha- or actually happens on the ground. And uh, of course uh, staying with uh, the European Union one of the uh, the challenges uh, throughout the this whole month uh, since the conflict began is of course there's been questions whether the European Union can pay full attention to both what's happening in Israel and Gaza and also in Ukraine and uh, the EU is adamant that it can but uh, there are some doubts over that. Um, yes, I mean, you know, obviously, you know, these kinds of big uh, EU meetings have, you know, when they've been talking about foreign affairs, Ukraine has, oh, has obviously been uh, their main priority. And they've been looking at, you know, sending a lot of uh, funding and, and weapons and so forth into uh, Ukraine as well. Um, so that is has been a huge priority. And I don't think that is going to be uh, forgotten. But I think uh, Gaza is, is a more complicated situation. Obviously, this situation has been going on for a long time. Obviously, it's escalated hugely over uh, the last few weeks. And, and Charles Michel here has been trying to say, well, you know, no, we, we don't have double standards. We have a fundamental standard of, of believing in international law. But, you know, as ever, do, un- working out what that means in the context of, of the Middle East is, is much more difficult. Uh, let's uh, move on now to another story that's dominated headlines um, over the week, over the past few weeks, because of a lot of uh, lack of decision. Uh, but finally, the United States 
States has a, a speaker. Um, who is the new House speaker and uh, uh, what do we know about Mike Johnson? Well, it's interesting looking at the, the US uh, papers this weekend, I mean, particularly this is uh, the New York Times. The, that is exactly the question they're asking is who, who is our speaker? You know, you may, you may have sort of gone through all the list of them and thought, well, I'm not going to not going to worry about who each one is until somebody is eventually actually voted in. Um, and now they are trying, everyone is trying to find out more about Mike Johnson, who people seem to know very little about, even in his own uh, congressional district in uh, Louisiana. So uh, the New York Times, which obviously you would accept, uh, expect to be a little bit sceptical about you know, a, a Southern conservative, um, is picking up particularly on uh, his religious views, saying he's known for placing his evangelical Christianity at the centre of his political life and policy positions. Um, in his first speech uh, from the chamber, it said he, he said, I believe God has ordained and allowed each one of us to be brought here for this uh, specific moment. And he was uh, praying f- for divine guidance with, with his fellow congressmen. So that is obviously, you know, key to who he is. He's got deep roots in the, the Southern Baptist Convention, um, you know, talking about which church he goes to in the, in the Baptist network. Um, and he is being described by people here, sociologists, as um, a Christian nationalist, uh, they're calling him. This is a sociologist at Indiana University talking about traditional family structures, authoritarian social control, and they say doing away with democratic values. And, you know, of course, he was one of the key people who didn't accept the results of the, the 2020 presidential election. And uh, that's what uh, a lot of uh, uh, watchers, US observers, are uh, a bit fearful of, is that uh, he is a speaker that is quite closely aligned with former President Donald Trump as well. Yes, I mean, you know, which, which is, you know, given his very strong religious views, that's a bit uh, surprising in some ways. I mean, it, you know, if you look at the policies that uh, he has, you know, opposed to abortion, opposed to same-sex marriage, opposed to homosexuality, um, but also, you know, you know, in the States, obviously, the separation of, of church and state is so key. Um, but Johnson apparently says he refers to the Declaration of Independence as a creed and describes it as a religious statement of faith um, and thinks his generation has been wrongly convinced that separation of church and state was outlined in the Constitution. I think a lot of people would, would not be agreeing with that. Uh, yeah, he, uh, he says that uh, he believes that too many Americans are denying the existence of God himself. So um, we know <laughs> we know exactly Uh, how he feels about the topic and of course um, the challenges that this uh, poses to when it comes exactly that separation uh, of church and state and uh, allowing religion to pepper through the world of politics uh, in a way that it shouldn't. It shouldn't really happen. Yeah, uh, but it's also another interesting article in the New York Times, which is where they have got some reporters who have gone to <clears throat> Mike Johnson's congressional district in northern Louisiana, and they've visited some great places, including um, a store called Hoot and Holler Archery, uh, and it's talking about you know this is quite a, obviously a largely a rural area, and uh, people there don't seem to know particularly much about about their congressman. But again, they reiterate this thing, saying you know they're excited it's his guy, but again. They're saying if you talk to him, he believes that what happens has been ordained by God, you know, and that uh, that that is one of sort of fundamental tenet of his belief. Um, they say he comes across, he, he will tell you he's never surprised by God's ordinance. Uh, and he means that. And that, you know, obviously they're hoping that this will uh, kind of put northern Shreveport in Louisiana uh, on the map um, and thinking that they hope that they will get, you know, 
an improvement in their economy, saying 22% of the district lives below the poverty level. Uh, they're looking for more investment in uh, in their town, in the Air Force base and things like that. And so they're hoping that they will no longer be, as they describe it, at the bottom of the barrel. Uh, well, at least uh, the, the House now has a speaker and a lot of the issues that have been on pause over the past, uh, what, 20 days or so can finally be resolved. One of them being, of course, requests for supplemental aid to both uh, Gaza and to Ukraine. Well, yes, but the question is, you know, is is this somebody um, who is going to want that? Uh, and, you know, he is obviously the new speaker. At least there will be decisions made, but that may not be uh, the decisions that, that Joe Biden um, and the Democrats w- would like to see happen. Now, let's uh, change uh, tone here a bit, because another story that you've picked up, and this is in The Times uh, here in London, uh, it's about an attempt to keep, uh, you know, an Arab-Israeli orchestra and musical academy alive. Tell me a bit more about this story. Yes, this, I mean, perhaps there's a bit of, of hope in this. And of course, you know, Daniel Barenboim very famously founded uh, the Divan Orchestra, the West East uh, Divan Orchestra, and he, with his son, um, who is now running it, also have um, an institution which they founded alongside Edward Said, who is, of course, a Palestinian, which is a a conservatoire based in Berlin, which uh, teaches music to young musicians who are coming mostly from the Middle East and North Africa. And the Times had a long interview with Michael Barenboim, um, Daniel Barenboim's son, who is now uh, in in charge of running it and you know he's talking really about how wonderful it is that people coming together to study music uh, says they do make friends across the great divides with people they would otherwise never meet and their philosophy is encountering the other in equal terms and playing music together and studying together they hope that that will bring these um, Israeli and Arab musicians uh, closer and it was interesting they had to um, they had the orchestra but in order to have the orchestra complete uh, continue to function they weren't getting the talent young people through and they had to create the the academy in order for them to learn music to to the standard and to be able to play um, the kind of music that they wanted to do. Um, But he does um, admit in this, Michael Barenboim, that it is becoming more difficult. I mean, he's talking about um, when the orchestra played in in Ramallah and in 2005, um, Israeli kids playing on the West Bank. And he says, sadly, he said, today you can't imagine it ever happening again. Um, That's tragic. But then they're also saying that they got this sense of despair among their students at the moment, given what is happening uh, in the Middle East. And they're having to comfort people who are bursting into tears, who need time to process it. Um, But then saying, you know, no, we've got to try and carry on and we've got to continue uh, working on this and making music. But not not only studying music, but also learning about history and literature and philosophy as well, so that they become more more rounded people as well as just, you know, hyper focused musicians. I found that quite fascinating in this article that the Academy, you know, is not focused on a curriculum that's uh, purely centred around uh, musical theory and learning uh, about, you know, uh, the intricacies of the instrument that they they might be studying. But yes, that uh, uh, helps students make sense of the global world order around them and what came before, exactly as you were describing with uh, history and philosophy and literature. It, It just seems like, you know, we know how uh, powerful music can be uh, at times of crisis, not only for self-expression, but to connect people with different views, which is, of course, the basis here. Um, but, you know, this idea that it can also help you uh, 
help form you as a human being uh, is uh, uh, quite a powerful thing. Yes, it's really interesting. I came across somebody recently who had exactly that. He had studied um, classical music so much and to you know to such an extent that he sort of after a few years realised that he hadn't had never studied anything else and want, wanted to go to university to study other things, politics and history, precisely because he felt that uh, studying music so intensively had left him with real gaps in his knowledge and he then carried on doing doing both and, and making music professionally but you know wanted to fill in fill in those gaps well Terry stay with us and we're going to stay more or less uh, in the world of music because much to everybody's surprise a progressive non-binary choir called Schmusikor the kissing and cuddling choir is making waves in conservative Austria they are performing in villages and small towns across the country while also maintaining a noticeable presence in Vienna well Monaco's Alexei Korolev spoke to the founder of the choir to find out what life is like outside the capital for unorthodox touring musicians. So my name is Marina Giesinger and I am the founder, leader and conductor of Schmusikor. It wasn't really my plan to found it uh, in the year 2014. I just wanted to sing in a choir myself and I didn't quite find one that I thought was fitting to me or what I was looking forward to. I thought I would just start singing with my friends in my bedroom at that time. It was really like in a shared flat. I was just with four or five people starting and rumors spread really quickly that there is something new happening. I think that was actually the moment when Schmusikor became Schmusikor. And within a few months, there were more and more people coming. We had to move into an art studio and started rehearsing there. And in 2015, we sang our first concert in Austria and it just exploded. And we are now up to 45 voices doing concerts all over Austria and also now in Italy. Lavinia Lana, a Vienna-based visual artist, is one of those voices. I come from a, a music background, like I used to sing in the family and also was part of a choir. So I did some research and waited for this open call of Schmusikor seven years ago and luckily I was chosen. What did you have to sing? What did you have to do in the audition? Um, they didn't tell us what we should prepare, so I was quite nervous, I would say. And then uh, as soon as I entered the room with all the other uh, singers and applicants, it was clear that this was already at that time a, a safe space where um, you didn't have to worry about anything. And we uh, sang Natural Woman, the song that we still have in our program right now. Uh, and I still love to sing it, even after seven years. So we only do pop songs that we really like. <laughs> Back to Schmusiko leader Verena Giesinger. It's actually only songs that I also like to listen to at home or 
we have some biography with it, like Backstreet Boys, for example. It's not something I would listen to nowadays at home anymore, but I grew up with. It was like one of the first uh, pop bands I actually saw live because my brother was uh, the band that was playing before Backstreet Boys. He was What? opening a Backstreet Boys. Wow. I wasn't aware of it at the time because I was too young. I was a bigger fan of my brother than I was of Backstreet Boys. <laughs> With colourful costumes and its repertoire of pop classics like I Want It That Way, the choir was bound to become a success in major cities, especially in liberal Vienna. But what about the rest of the country? People in the Austrian countryside can be notoriously conservative. What do they think of this queer feminist choir singing decidedly foreign songs? It happened to us very often that we went to the countryside. The last time I remember it was in a very small town in Upper Austria and we were invited to sing in a church. And we like to sing in churches because the acoustics are amazing and I think it's a space that I would really like to re-own and take those amazing architectural spaces back. And we went to this village with our costumes. At the time, they were very um, pompous, like very big and colorful. And we always play with those typical gender roles and we bend them and we see that everybody feels the way they want to feel and maybe get a bit empowered by the costumes. So we went there very self-confident and felt like in the best version of ourselves and entered this small village and in the beginning I didn't notice how many weird glances we get like people looked at us and were quite skeptical they were watching us and they uh, were not uh, really agreeing with what we looked like but in the concert itself it usually always happens that we get everyone to love us till the end mm -hmm. you can feel it for the first two three four songs that they're skeptical but usually latest when I start speaking to them actually <laughs> And they're like, mm, okay, maybe they're not so weird as I thought. So the concert turned out to be super nice and very beautiful. But afterwards, we went to one of those typical restaurants in Austria, you know, that are like really... Yeah, yeah, guest house. Guest house. <laughs> they're so conservative. When I entered this uh, guest house, there was an older guy coming out and he said like, yeah, I really like the way you were singing and performing. But why, and he was like really aggressive, why do you have to dress like this? I feel like, okay, these are actually the places that need Schmusekor and they need to see us and they need to listen to us. And if they manage to like us in the end of a one hour, two hour concerts, then I think we did our job very well. For Monaco in Vienna, I'm Alexei Korolev. And my thanks to Alexei Krolyov. So with me here in the studio is Terry Siasny. Terry, what a lovely report there by Alexei. Quite nice to hear a bit of the music uh, there as well from the choir. Um, it made me uh, want to ask you about um, any memorable concerts that you may have been to uh, that this piece uh, might have reminded you of. 
Yeah, not a similar um, kind of concert. It's mostly making me want to go to a gas house and eat some schnitzel. <laughs> I'm feeling really hungry now, partly at the end. Um, but yeah, I remember going to a fantastic concert on the South Bank where they had a screening of a new print of Metropolis, of the Fritz Lang film, silent film. And they played it, you know, not just with a sort of keyboard as you might have had in the old days, but with a full orchestra there on the South Bank. And it was absolutely fantastic having, you know, having this amazing film and having, you know, the live orchestra playing uh, a soundtrack that, that that matched, you know, the, the film. And so that was a really, that was a really great experience. It really tells you and shows you the power of music. And uh, uh, you have seamlessly given us a link to the last story of our newspaper review today, which of course is all about film and the return of the intermission. Yes, that's right. This was that was fortunately, you know, quite a short film, so you didn't need <laughs> an intermission. But um, this uh, story in the Guardian saying here, UK cinemas are hailing the return of intermissions because there are now so many long three-hour-plus films, including uh, Martin Scorsese's Killers of the Flower Moon, which particularly has um, prompted this. And so, you know, because people are saying that this is too long, I can't, I can't manage to watch all this film without needing a, a break for the, for the loo or, or an ice cream or something. Um, so they're bringing back the intermission. Um, and I remember, I, mean, I think it's a long time. It says here there used to be, it was the early 80s when you last in the UK generally had uh, an intermission. I remember going to see the director's cut of Lawrence of Arabia, which they had redone again, you know, big cinema, Leicester Square. And then about halfway through that, which was, it's very, very long. It's the really long version of Lawrence <laughs> of Arabia. They did have an intermission and, the, you know, came up in big letters on the screen and you could go and have a break and stretch your legs and I think you know for a film like that as long as you put your intermission uh, in the right place I think that's possibly possibly quite a good idea and people might like that and now uh, of course one of the first things that I thought about when reading this story is uh, how different it is culturally because I was quite surprised when I first moved to the UK because in Portugal where I'm from intermission is still something that we have in cinemas and I remember the first time I went to a cinema here in London uh, I can't remember which movie it was, but just being throughout the film thinking wow this is really long when is the intermission then of course the film just ended it's like oh okay Um, is this something that just happens in this particular movie theatre that I picked or is it a a UK thing and then I discovered that the UK traditionally does not do intermissions but I I don't know I think I'm quite um, an advocate for it of course if it's a short film maybe it doesn't justify but uh, it helps you avoid leaving the the movie at the wrong time and uh, you can stretch and go to the bathroom and maybe get more popcorn or a drink I don't know yes I think it's quite a good idea I went to see you know Past Lives which was quite a short film recently and even in that film people were just constantly getting up going out going getting a drink coming back again getting some food it's like you know it's not your house (laughs) sit down and watch the film you know but if we had a a set time when you could get up and go and get a drink or something then probably you would stop people going in and out or checking their phone or doing other things and like maybe you'd say you know these these are the rules (laughs) wait for the the right moment it would be easier to stick to them because then you know, okay, there's a break coming. I can do all of those things yeah. in about, I don't know, 45 minutes or an hour from now. Yeah. But I think, you know, the trouble here for the cinema is that they realise, you know, they've had lots of people coming back to the cinema, but they realise they are fighting against uh, streaming and, you know, being able to pause things and stop when you want to. And I think that's the problem. People don't expect 
not to be able to pause something and go away and come back to it. And it's having that, keeping that long attention, which can be quite difficult. And there is, uh, of course, an element here, particularly with this uh, Scorsese movie and, you know, the big uh, films that are made for you to watch in these big screens with the sound system, with uh, with everything that makes cinema so wonderful and magic that, you know, if it's going to be three and a half hour long, people will need a bathroom at some point. Yes. I mean, I think there's, you know, the argument that is discussed here in this article is, you know, should films just have a, a time to read it should they be a bit shorter but then Martin Scorsese have been defending his film and he's saying well look you know if you can sit in front of the TV and watch something for five hours you can watch theatre for three and a half hours give cinema respect and you should respect the kind of the duration of these of these big films you know but kind of he would say that because it's his film. <laughs> well hopefully an intermission will make it easier for everyone to watch it. Uh, Terry Siasny thank you very much for joining us and that's all for Monocle on Saturday. My thanks to our producer and studio engineer Mariella Bevan. Monocle on Saturday will be returning next weekend. I'm Carlotta Rabello. Thank you for listening.